Plants have marvellously elaborate networks of roots and branches, all for taking the sun's energy along with nutrients and moisture, or water, and converting it into their own growth and repair. How do they develop these complex structures? And how to explain the uncanny mathematical patterns which they follow? Our guest this week is Sandy Hetherington, a professor in biology at the University of Edinburgh. He looks at the evolution of plants on very long timescales, on geological timescales. We talk about the methods for doing that, including the incredible details that can be revealed in fossils, down to the cellular level, as well as the way that we can compare plants now um, to plants that, that have similar features that we can recognise in fossils. And doing this, we can understand the evolutionary tree of trees, if you like, or plants in general. Sandy has made important contributions along with his collaborators in understanding how roots developed and also in in the, the patterns that, that leaves take. Um, in particular, recently, he's looked at how certain plants don't seem to follow a Fibonacci sequence in the arrangements of their patterns. And this is well known. There's plants now which don't do that. But he's shown that this is actually a very, very old trait. And this may lead us to rethink of an understanding of how and why plants take the shapes that they do. We also talk about the clues that this type of research might give to the future trajectory of plant evolution as they react to the changing atmosphere that humanity has created. Sandy strikes me as someone with a real eye for detail, and I think this comes across in his work. And certainly having this conversation has caused me to look more closely and appreciate even the most humble of plants. I'm James Robinson. You're listening to Multiverses. Sandy Hetherington, um, thanks for joining me uh, on Multiverses. Thank you all for the invitation to be here. So in biology, uh, I've noticed that labs tend to take the name of um, the lead investigator. So you lead something called the Hetherington Lab, but it has another name, which is, and it's it's a great name, the Molecular Paleobotany and Evolution Group. That's a pretty grand title. Can you, can you explain like how all those things come together? Yeah, um, of course. So the Molecular Paleobotany and Evolution Group really came about because I wanted to give the group name a vision for what we're doing. Um, and each one of those strands is kind of combined in this interdisciplinary approach we, ta- we take to tackle questions in plant evolution. So um, let's start from the beginning. Um, molecular paleobotany is a kind of name taken from a, a field more in the area of paleontology, where paleontologists began to realise that there were many different molecular techniques that could be used to give us really new insights into fossils. So whether that means looking at um, molecular in, in terms of chemical type signals or using molecular data as we refer to it in biology, so thinking about uh, genes and genomes. So molecular paleobotany is the idea that we can combine evidence from fossil plants, that's paleobotany plants, with the molecular side of living species today. Um, and then combining that all together, um, calling it the evolution group as well, is just to give it that framework that everything we're doing is really interpreted in an evolutionary context. Okay, so yeah, and, and obviously, and the paleo thing, I think, just worth putting out 
remind us that means very old like very crudely put right? yeah of course yeah so paleo paleobotany is probably a word that lots of people haven't really come across you might have heard of paleontology mm-hmm. for looking at really old things but paleobotany is in particular the study of fossil plants mm-hmm. um, and so we're talking about fossilized fossilized structures um, often things that are over about a million years old but most of the things we're looking at are much older in the geological record so about 300 or 400 million years ago are lots of the fossils we're working on okay that's really old yeah i mean so that's much older than the dinosaurs obviously yep. um, and i think one thing that strikes me is that fossils have had a glorious history in the study of animal evolution and famously darwin had a had a impressive collection of fossils which um informed actually you know indeed inspired his his theory of evolution uh, but i've not seen the same sort of i don't know level of um research going on in in, in plant fossils is, is, is that fair um yeah definitely i think there's definitely less people who study plant fossils i think there's in some ways there's often less people who study plants in general they're mm. often overlooked but the plant fossil record also has a huge amount to tell us um, and has also been really key for for helping to build evolutionary theory because there's many things that are actually easier to study in plants than there are necessarily in animals and they give us an entirely independent view on evolution and i think this is a really nice um point to highlight is that animals and plants have both independently evolved multicellularity so their common mm. ancestor was unicellular and then the fact that multicellularity evolved multiple times in these different lineages gives us a kind of independent way to investigate evolutionary phenomena because there's no reason necessarily to assume that evolution is being played out exactly the same way in plants that are sessile and they're um, interacting with the environment in quite a different way to animals. So that's one of the main reasons why I think it's great to, to investigate plants. Mm. And another thing that I've, I've noticed from your work is that, you know, ever we've noticed this is looking at very, very old plants. And that also allows you to take a kind of longer view of evolution than if you're looking at more recent things and one might just think oh well evolution is always over long timescales but this is you know much longer timescales than than say the kind of the, the animal fossils that again darwin was interested in yeah definitely so i think there's um, many different ways to study evolution over many different timescales lots of the one that actually edinburgh university is really famous for are these um much shorter timescales where we're looking at individual populations so you can mm-hmm. actually study a population of um sheep or rams or deer um, quite famously studied over a long time where you're tracking everything i'm really interested i'm interested in that but i'm actually interested in these much longer time scales as well to see whether those same dynamics that we see at the short scale play out over millions of years when they're interspersed with things like um giant asteroids hitting the earth um huge changes in in global in global climate um movement of the continents itself so how do those things play out at the macro these longer term time scales that we see at the micro level as well and, and so, yeah, key to this is having access to very, very old fossils, at least to the kind of paleobotany part. There's then comparisons that you can do with, with modern plants. But it, yeah, we need some handle on what plants looked like uh, a very long time ago. We're talking, yeah, 300, 400 million years. Uh, where do we get those? You mentioned fossils, but, you know, what kind of shape are these fossils in? You know, for something... I'm not expecting, one might not think that these are going to tell us that much if they're hundreds of millions of years old. Yeah, definitely. So like, let's break that down to a couple of points. So the first one is, um, yeah, whereabouts can we get fossils? So we're very lucky um, here in the UK to have 
huge museum collections of fossils. Um, so many of the museums, including National Museum Scotland, just down the road, has some great um, has an entire warehouse of fossils, mm-hmm. um, which you can go and investigate. So there's obviously lots of these that are already curated. If you are particularly interested in knowing what the dinosaurs ate or what was around when our first ancestors were coming out of the water, so that's a good place to start. However, um, the UK especially is particularly famous for some key time periods that include fossil plants, mm. and the most famous is the Carboniferous period. So Carboniferous period, um, roughly 360 to 300 million years ago. Um, it's got the name Carbonin. It's famous for huge amounts of coal deposits. Now, coal um, you know, fueled the Industrial Revolution, and the majority of these coal deposits we have in both the UK, in Europe, and America were all formed at that period of time. And they were formed by giant swampy forests known as the coal swamp forests. Um, so where we're sitting here in Edinburgh, 300 million years ago would have been right in the middle of a swampy forest. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's that forest that would have formed deep, thick layers of organic rich peats. Um, and over long periods of geological time, they've been compressed to form um, coal. Um, so what's really great is pretty much wherever we have coal, you will also have other fossil plants. Um, that You'll also have lots of other, other fossil plants as well. So actually just down at the coast, even in Edinburgh, you can find uh, fossil plants. And what they would look like if you had uh, the rock in front of you now would be um, often on these larger slabs, you'd have a black coaly outline of a plant that would actually look really familiar. Lots mm. of the time you're looking at things that look just like fern leaves today. Mm-hmm. So remarkably, 300 million years ago, you have this kind of foliage which looks incredibly similar to what you'd recognise today. And, and how detailed are these fossils? How much can we see of the, the form? Is it just a kind of outline or um, is there more, more than that? Yeah, so it really varies. It varies between sites. So in lots of these ones associated with coal, all we're looking at is a, is a compression, that thin coaly layer which will often crumble off. So in general, you're looking at um, often the impression um, of the leaf of, of a leaf itself. So mm-hmm. that gives you, you can see the outlines of where the veins would have been and the shape of the leaf, but in many cases, not that much more. Mm-hmm. However, move to some other fossil sites and things change completely. We get fossils that are preserved in three dimensions. Mm-hmm. Their internal tissues are preserved. Um, so for a great example would be the petrified forest. Mm-hmm. You might have come across petrified wood before, but in many cases, petrified wood, um, petrified means that you've got typically mineral rich water has seeped into the wood and deposited the minerals within the cellular spaces. Mm. So actually, in many cases, the fact you can see tree rings in a petrified forest means that actually you've got the cells preserved. Mm. And if you take one of those, you know, big um, a chunk of fossil wood and if you slice it into a very thin, thin section, a thin slice, and looked at it under a microscope, you can actually often see individual cells preserved. So the preservation ranges all the way from those just coaly outlines that we find often quite commonly. Um, and in many cases, you can actually go and find them yourselves, all the way up to ones where we can see individual cells in, in plants that grew over three or 400 million years ago. Yeah, that, that, that's mind-blowing that that you can have that level of detail of, of resolution down to the individual cell. Uh, and I suppose it's it's quite a unique mechanism that produces it. So it's this, it's the minerals coming out of the water. Uh, do they crystallize then and, and kind of preserve it and what i'm you know one thinks of kind of science fiction films where there's cryogenic freezing and this this is kind of the equivalent of cryogenic preservation in a sense um and, and indeed 
I suppose even if we were to freeze um, cells, generally that would would harm them and 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 um, sort of destroy the cell walls because as the water expands. So it's seems just so so fortuitous that there is this mechanism that exists that um, leaves a record of something so old in in such detail. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's quite mind blowing. So in the, in the actual more lab based side, we're working on living plants today. We're obviously really interested in their internal tissues. And so the way we often investigate those is, is making similar thin preparations mm. um, of, the, of those specimens as well. Um, and typically you would fix them in, in resin or in wax. And then you try and cut these very, very thin slices and look at the internal, you know, the preservation of the internal tissues. And it's remarkable that we do this on a day-to-day basis. So many of these ones we make with the living species, we just have to throw away because the preservation is not good enough. And mm. yet we've got these fossils from 400 million years ago where the preservation is actually even better in some cases than, than we can get in the lab. Yeah. It's kind of mind-blowing. <laughs> and, and I'm curious, you, you mentioned that, yeah, we have a lot of, um, you know, there's museums and, um, uh, you know, Kew Gardens and other places which are where we have these really comprehensive fossil collections. Uh, you know, why? Was this, you know, why were people picking up these fossils? And did they know, what did they know about the things they were, were finding? Yeah, so I think we started with the collections um, in in the UK and Europe. I'd say many of them have actually come, especially many of them are from the Carboniferous period, when the Industrial Revolution fueled this hunt for coal. Um, you know, fossils were just found alongside al- alongside that, and because some of them look so characteristic like living species today, they were mm. collected. This is also around the time where people are um, trying to give names. Um, to species they're finding, so there's cataloguing um, and also the development of the theory of of evolution at the same mm-hmm. time as well. So all of these things are combined that we're trying to understand how life might have changed through, through time and how they've been cataloged. So I think at that period in time, um, you know, that's in the late, um, yeah, late late nineteenth century, mm-hmm. when many of the big collections are being found. But there is there's records that fossil plants were found earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lovely example called the Herbarium of the Deluge, which is one of the first um, books written about fossil plants. So herbarium specimens are taken when uh, living species are kept today and they're pressed. Mm-hmm. Um, places like Kew Gardens that you mentioned has an amazing collection, as does Botanic Gardens Edinburgh, and we, we use these as a record of, of plants, and this is how we give plants, and keep a record of which plants have which particular names. So this book was written because it was um, a herbaria of what they were interpreting as, as a great flood, because mm. they were finding these encased in rock. Um, and this, I've forgotten what age it is, but this is taking us back um, quite a bit earlier. So at that point, people were e- even able to recognise them as plants. Mm. Um, but I think at that time it would have been difficult to, or they wouldn't be able to comprehend the, the long time scales we're talking about. Yeah. Although, I mean, the name suggests that they thought they discovered the, you know, the the flora of the Garden of Eden, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Exactly. That, quite amazing. Um, and one thing that struck me from looking through your work is that these very old uh, specimens are still generating um new science um and so uh, i know you found something you know really crucial in our understanding of the early development of of, of roots um can you take us through what what that was and um you know the specimens that were used and and uh, so forth yeah of course so um i think the reason why these old fossils can definitely you know really lead us to new interpretations is that we have very different questions than when they were often first found 
Um, and so for me, I'm, being, uh, I'm very interested in the evolution of new organs. So how does an entirely new organ evolve? In the case of plants, um, most of my kind of early work that I did was all on roots. So when did plant roots evolve? Um, and what, you know, what can we learn about this? How, how much did it change the earth? And when we're thinking biologically and developmentally, what does that actually mean to evolve a new organ? Um, and so what we can do is we can take a starting place of living species today. Um, most, the vast majority of living plant species today are what we call vascular plants. They mm -hmm. have a specialised conducting t tissue known as the, the, the water conducting xylem um, and the food conducting phloem. Now they make up um, yeah, the vast majority of living species and almost all of their species develop roots. So we might predict that their common ancestor also developed a root and therefore that the presence of roots in all of these living species represents just conservation from that um, right. origin. However, when we turn to these early fossils, the story changes quite a bit because in the earliest fossils we find of fossil vascular plants, we don't find any evidence of roots. We find these really su superficial um, kind of horizontal stems covered in these hair-like structures. So suddenly these fossils are giving us a really interesting view on a type of rooting system which you know, we just don't really see in, in these living vascular plants today. Um, and so at that point the question still becomes, okay, we have a rootless common ancestor um, mm. and we've got plants today with roots. So what's in between those two? Um, and there's a very key fossil site called the Rhiney Chert, which is based um, here in Scotland and has some um, incredible preservation of plants that are roughly 407 million years old. And one of the plants in there has these early rooting systems. So we thought, if there's going to be one plant that might be able to help tell us and inform us about this transition, it's definitely, you know, this is definitely, given the preservation of this plant, Astroxylon machiae, might be able to give us you know, a real new insight. Um, and so we hunted through um, specimens which are actually already in museum collections around the UK, and did a survey of attempting to try and find all the thin slices of these specimens in museums around the UK. And it was while finding, uh, looking through those that came across um, the very tip of one of these little mm. rooting axes. And based on living species today, we know that the tips of a root are covered by a structure known as the root cap, which helps protect it as it grows through the soil environment. And yet this feature appeared to be absent in the fossil. Mm. Um, and so this very early fossil, therefore, we interpret it as giving us a really unique view on how roots might have evolved. An ancestor lacked roots, and then we had this form we interpreted as a transitional form. So in some ways, it's kind of half, it's like a halfway route. Mm -hmm. It's got many of the features we associate with roots, but isn't quite there. And then we know in the living lycophytes today, the ones related to that species, that they develop true roots with all the characteristics. So this was really interesting that it, it told us about um, the gradual evolution of roots in that group. And also what I think is most exciting is that if the ancestor of vascular plants was rootless, and yet, amongst this lycophyte lineage, we know it took quite a long time for roots to evolve mm. in a gradual fashion. It implies that roots, as we know them today, have actually had two entirely separate evolutionary um, evolutionary origins. Yeah. So it seems that you know roots are so important that kind of, well, to use the terminology of Jurassic Park, you know, life life found a way, yeah, and it's definitely. it's developed them you know independently in, at, at different points. Um, yeah, that that that's really something, and I guess the root cap so is kind of protects the root and helps um, dig into the earth. Um, you mentioned uh, how important roots have been in changing the ground beneath us and, and actually the atmosphere as well. I think you, you might have mentioned, um, and 
and in going from this very so initially very hair like um i think it's rhizoidal is it yeah yeah, yeah. That's what so very very fine structures which kind of the you know the first if you like iteration of roots um and then becoming you know burrowing deeper into the earth um or actually it, it strikes me that they they were sort of creating that soil as they went so um these very early plants that were not long off the water and they were on a on, a, on an Earth's surface that looked very different to how it is now. So, yeah, maybe take us through what, what did the Earth look like when we had the first plants on, on the surface and how were they adapted to that versus how they evolved and how the, the surface evolved as well? Definitely. So, it's, I mean, it's, first of all, it's, it's very difficult to know exactly what the Earth's surface would have looked exactly mm. like. Um, part of the reason for that is it's very difficult to also pin down exactly when plants first evolved because the fossil record... We're working with plants around 407 million years old in the Rhiney Church, um, but we predict that fossil plants might have gone back the best part of 100 million years before that. Right. Um, and for a number of reasons, such as biases in the geological record, um, we just don't really have a great record of, of this very early evolution. So it's difficult to say what was going on in, in the earliest period. Is that roughly because we don't have you know until you have enough matter building up of the right kind these kind of pt um cherts uh, uh you're not going to have this kind of mineralized um water that's throwing through things and, and 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 preserving them um so we just have like a kind of blind spot i guess is is that roughly that's, so that's definitely one of the reasons but on top of that whole thing is is this imprint of the rock record itself right so the rock record we have is is not representative of the geological so each geological period doesn't have doesn't make up ten percent of the of the record, for example. Mm. Instead, the Carboniferous period, where we have huge amounts of coal, we have loads of terrestrial um, terrestrial rock from that period in time. Right. The Devonian period before that, same thing. The Silurian period before that, as we get earlier, we have loads and loads of marine sediments and almost no terrestrial rock. So in actual fact, you know that that um, period of time is famous for finding um, you know marine fossils. Right. And yet we don't have the chest one. So I think the, the rock record itself has imprinted and made it more difficult to, to investigate what's going on at this period in time. Okay. So, yeah, we, I guess one issue is, yeah, we, we just don't know. We don't have a rock record which, which tells us quite like the, um, what, the, what the surface of the earth looked like. But can we speculate? What yeah, do we think uh, to the best of our you know, um, science, I guess? Yeah, so definitely... Um, I think it would have definitely looked very different to most places place on the terrestrial surface today. We're, we're used to seeing plants. We see plants mm. um, almost everywhere. So some of the best analogies would be to go to places with uh, many fewer plants or where plants make up a tiny, you know, a tiny subset. So some quite extreme environments, um, bits of the Arctic, um, would be great examples of that, where you have what we would call, um, and bits around some bits of deserts as well, um, a cryptogamic cover. Mm-hmm. is is what this has often been come to known as and it's what that is supposed to encompass is that if you're looking at it from a distance you can probably make out there's some sort of life maybe some colors um, and when you zoom in closer you see there's just a range of there's still quite a lot of diversity there might be lichens uh, fungi um, very small land plants all sort of hanging on together in this very very small scale and some of that life might be slightly below ground um, 
you know, lichens and these early potentially moss-like mite plants are still able to bind together some of those soil particles and help trap other things. So they're they're leading to the kind of accretion of more biological, uh, both more biological material, but also bits of more sediment. Um, but within that, again, as I said, there's, there'll be definitely uh, fungal life and uh, mm-hmm. symbiosis with cyanobacteria and things. So um, I, oft, I often think of it as a kind of barren, it must have looked like a barren, you know, initially it would look like a really barren, inhospitable environment. I think if you zoomed in closer, you'd actually find there'd still be quite a bit of life there, mm. but just not much, which is large and multicellular yeah. um, at this period in time. But then that all, that all changes um, as we move into the kind of Devonian period of plants are beginning to take off and get get much bigger. So, so as we move into this uh, Devonian period about 400 million um, years ago, yeah, h- how do things change? Yeah, so I think the the first thing um, we yeah, we really notice is oh, let's let's start the soil and work up because that's where yeah. I've been working so far. So the the first thing we definitely see is um, we start to see soils that are looking a bit more familiar. We've got rooting systems now uh, penetrating to you know, a variable depth. By the mid Devonian, we have we have roots um, at least a meter in depth. Wow. Okay. Um, so they're you know again they're they're breaking up rock, but they're also anchoring together rock. They're um, allowing life to extend deeper into these kind of um, soil environments. So I think the soil itself is is changing. And would we have, so that roots of up to a, a metre um, deep, and would would the soil have been that deep already or, or were they sort of burrowing into rock? Um, yeah, so I think this, it's actually quite a sticky, situ- um, a sticky subject as to what precisely is soil right and how right. do we define it because yes yeah. let's, let's talk about when that you, yeah when you if, if you know the the images coming back from the discovery rover on mars mm-hmm. show a form of what people often call a regolith a kind of broken up sandy sandy type substrate on the surface and it's a question as to when does that sand broken up sand um, inorganic type substrate turn into what we call a soil mm. And I think there's quite a kind of spectrum in there. So what you can definitely imagine is before you have plants on land, you know, there's still going to be lots of sediment. There's going to be silts. They're going to be, um, you know, think about a kind of sandy beach and you think about changes to areas where there'd be more mud, mm. um, more sort of mud rock, you know, entirely inorganic. But mm. So there's there's definitely substrates in that sense. So I think these things, are they're, they're burrowing, the roots are burrowing down most likely into this stuff. Uh, I think they're helping to break up rock, but I don't think they're, not just um, kind of drilling straight right. in, into hard rock, but they're definitely um, they're forming what we then move on to, you know, calling this thing a, like a soil because there is there's organic life coming mm-hmm. you know, deeper in it. There's uh, there's changes. There's uh, the plants are actually moving water around. You know, mm. water's coming being brought up by the roots. Um, they're also as they're being broken down, they're putting carbon into these environments as well. So at this point, I think it's again something where I think we'd be just inherently more familiar with it as as a type of soil rather than just simply sandy sediment yeah it, it's really interesting it strikes me that so many things within the sciences are and philosophy um are emergent and you can't quite say where one thing becomes another and you know one of the extreme you have completely barren um you know dust i guess which is very very uniform but then um some point as you say you can imagine a bit of mud coming in and and then at the other extreme you have something that's completely teeming with life and um you know full of underground fungi and roots and and bacteria and so forth but um yeah where one becomes the other like <laughs> is is something that well 
we can we don't necessarily need an answer to it. I guess it's kind of uh, depends on how you want to uh, frame things. Um, so yeah, so but as you said, but it is clearly changing. So definitely, um, and there's changes below ground uh, and above ground. And is there a kind of feedback loop here? So you mentioned the, the, the change to the atmospheric um, constitution. Yeah. Uh, what's going on? Yeah, so at the same time that these region systems are getting bigger below ground, obviously the bit above ground, which I think we'd spot instantly we were standing there, the fact we're for the first time getting larger trees mm. um, up to heights of, you know, the initial ones, you know, we find evidence of up to about eight meters or something. But wow. these are definitely, um, yeah, they're, they're large large organic structures we're seeing the first um you know diversity of branching branching structures of leaves up into the world this time as well these big woody stems so um suddenly plants are there and we've got a kind of forest forest ecosystem um and this itself is really changing lots of the kind of biogeochemical cycles on the earth so already mentioned water but plants are really important in terms of taking up water um, and effectively breathing it out to the environment through mm. the process of transpiration um, they're also mining for nutrients, so you know the kind of nutrients that plants need for their growth is also coming from directly mining it from the environment as well. So they're leading to different cycling, moving those nutrients to different parts above ground, which are then you know being broken down and recycled by other organisms. So these are changing, and then one of the most uh, famous is actually how plants were able to change the concentration of um, CO two in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's kind of two things that jump out for this. The first is that. Um, First of all, plants are locking up um, a lot of CO2 in their own bodies. Yeah. Um, and when we think about it, for going from an environment where there's just no forest to forest covering large parts of the terrestrial surface, you're actually ending up with quite a large part of that um, uh, CO2 being locked up as carbon in their bodies themselves. Um, and as long as those forests are maintained, that's actually you know quite a large net store of carbon. And the other thing that they're doing is... Um, Broadly increasing um, weathering rates, and so w- the weathering of rock, um, weathering of certain types of rock called silicate rocks, which are quite common, um, as they're broken down, they uh, there's a net drawdown of CO two from the atmosphere as they're mm-hmm. weathered um, through this kind of long, you know, very very long term carbon cycle, and it's it's a long gradual process, but the combined effect of locking up lots of carbon in their own bodies, um, but also increasing weathering rates means that plants are yeah, quite remarkably able to change concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere. And this is correlated with this big decrease in um, atmospheric CO2 levels. Hmm. Do we know how that affected plants' rate of growth? I'm conscious now that we, we seem to see plants growing, or we certainly do see plants growing more quickly with just a very small change. Um, I don't want to downplay the importance of the change in, this, in the current levels of CO2 in the atmosphere as it's very precarious. Um, but you know relatively we've we've got we've gone from you know hundreds of parts per million to an extra 100 part per million or so um of, of co2 in, in in our atmosphere now um but i presume that the change um in this period was much much greater um did plants grow more slowly because they were able to draw down less co2 or was it actually maybe easier for them for for other reasons yeah, that's really interesting. I think I think it's something we actually don't. We there's no great answer to that. What we do know is that you know they're being CO two levels are being drop, um, brought down towards levels that we see today. Mm-hmm. So before then, they're higher than that. And in theory, that might have meant that plants might have been able to grow faster, like you suggest, because it's easier for them to get CO two. Um, but it's that's a hypothesis which would be really difficult to test. 
um, about the actual, um, you know, the, the lifespan of the plant. One thing we definitely do see um, is that there's a correlation between the levels of atmospheric CO2 and the small pores that we get on plant leaves called stomata. Um, and these pores are really important because they're the valves that allow gas exchange from the outside, from the atmosphere on the outside to inside the plant where um, they're then used for photosynthesis. Um, and what we find is that when levels of CO2 are very high, plants can get away with having not that many stomata because you mm-hmm. don't need many pores to let in the CO2. Mm-hmm. This is good because plants are always playing a game, a trade-off game, right. because as soon as you have pores in your leaf, these are the places where water is being lost. Yeah. So plants are always playing this careful balancing game between how many um, how many pores you have and how open they are, therefore how much water you're going to lose, but also the requirement to have them open to get CO2 in. So at a time when CO2 levels were super high in the past, they might have been able to have a bit of a different physiology where they maybe didn't need as many pores open to get in that amount of CO2. Okay, so that might give us some clues about the trajectory for for plant evolution as, yeah, in a time of rising CO2 uh, levels. So I guess we we might expect, again, that it will have kind of smaller um, pores like this. Yeah, definitely. I think it'd be really, um, definitely very interesting to follow in the future. And actually, this this pattern was actually recognised from looking through um, um, much more recent data from herbarium specimens where they Mm. were able to... um, yeah, in, investigate this from, from looking back in the past, over the past um, you know, 50 to 100 years about the way the number of tomato on leaves were changing levels of CO2. So it's um, it's interesting, this is something we've learned from living living species and then being able to put into the past um, um, and use with fossils as well. That's incredible. Yeah, uh, slight tangent. Is this something where we should be using our knowledge to to do selective breeding, for example, and say, okay, well, we know how things are going to trend in terms of um, carbon um, concentration in the atmosphere. We, whereas plants don't know that they they kind of react to it. But you know, maybe we could get ahead of the curve here and um, you know try to create plants which are better adapted to to this this kind of new unfortunate <laughs> system that or, or scenario that we put ourselves in definitely no i think i think it's a, a real area of research i know um the lab of professor julie gray at the university of sheffield um is is definitely working in in that area in that she's managed to identify mutants which change um i'm pretty sure the, the density of the number of tomatoes you have and then mm. think of those specifically in the context of crop plants because lots of the research we the fundamental research we do is on um, model species that one in particular called Arbolopsis thaliana, which is um, a type of crest. So not something, you know, it's it's important for us because it's, it's a system where we are able to pin down and really understand so much of the biology of the plant, but doesn't necessarily translate instantly to crops. Yeah. So um, I remember, yeah, with, with Julie's work, being able to actually extend that, extend that into crop species and to be able to modify stomata on crop plants is, just like you say, a really interesting trait that will become, yeah, really more useful yeah and, and presumably uh, yeah it would, it would make them more drought resistant or, or more resistant to um drier air i suppose and, and transpiration um losses interesting um yes yeah, so okay so where are we we're in the devonian <laughs> period <laughs> we've we've seen um eight meter tall trees growing up uh we've seen i guess now we've got proper big roots to support that fully with root caps and um and, and so forth um yeah what next what do we yeah any other innovations that that you'd like to highlight from this time 
so so for me this this period of time is really exciting because it's when um yeah i think the plant body plan is forming we're beginning to see yeah leaves and roots and, and plants that we've be um yeah relatively familiar with at the moment and um one thing in particular we're noticing is it's leaves as i said um and leaves are actually going to be arranged in characteristic patterns mm. um, and some work that we've just just had published recently is actually uh, giving us kind of illumination into some of these early leaf-like patterns we're finding in the Devonian. So what you might not have noticed is that plant leaves are often arranged in, in quite precise patterns. Um, and this is most apparent if you look at something, um, some rosette-type plants or a succulent mm. plant, where you can kind of look down from the top and you can see that they seem to be arranged in patterns, and often those patterns are in spirals. Mm-hmm. So you often see spirals of leaves. If you turn a pine cone over, you'll see that there's... Um, the arrangement of those reproductive structures are in spirals, you see spirals in flowers. Actually, these spirals seem to crop up everywhere. Um, the more we look in plants, the more we find these uh, spiral-like structures. And what's been interesting is when they've been um, investigated and kind of quantified is that these spirals are often described by integers in the famous mathematical series, the Fibonacci series. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, again, because Fibonacci spirals are a bit like the same story with roots, really, because they're so common today, it was always assumed that they must have been there, they must have been ancient. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, these early early fossils, again, looking at fossils in the Rhine Chert that we just recently examined, again in that same species, Astroxel and Machiae, we were able to look at the arrangement of its leaves, and we found that they were spirals, but remarkably they were actually um, non-Fibonacci spirals. Mm. So this seemed to indicate that, in fact, if we were standing in the Devonian, we'd see that leaves were arranged, but there's a reasonable chance that many of these plants would have um, types of arrangements that we're just not as familiar with seeing today. And actually, at a later date, yeah, these Fibonacci spirals we're so familiar with today must have cropped up. Yeah, and I think that that seems to suggest that there might be kind of multiple, again, multiple ways which leaves have have, have evolved. Because this, um, the I'm going to pronounce this wrongly, but the Aster, Asteroxalon yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, is sort of the ancestor of, of, of club mosses mm-hmm. um, and so, so we know that other um, types of plants which do have evolved their leaves kind of on a, on a separate time scale mm-hmm. and, and therefore yeah again like they seem to have come up with these innovations um, separately and, and led to kind of different yeah arrangements of, of, of their leaves, which is quite surprising, perhaps. Definitely, definitely yeah. I think uh, it's still something that um, strikes me as just remarkable about um, what we yeah, term convergent evolution, where mm. um, through the course of evolution, similar shapes and forms are cropping up many times independently. Um, and leaves are, are a great example of that. And in this case, the even the arrangement of leaves, these, these Fibonacci spirals, seem to be cropping up in multiple lineages separately. In some ways, it's quite funny quite interesting with a with a trait like Fibonacci spirals where they're so common today to try and understand you know what's going on in the few groups that don't do it yeah um and that's what I found so exciting about this early fossil because suddenly we it gave a kind of new perspective um they'd always been thought anything that wasn't Fibonacci was always thought as kind of an oddball something that had just um very recently maybe gone off on its own track whereas this seemed to say in the case of this group of lycophytes that actually that um, inherent diversity, those kind of different types, really had a really long evolutionary history. So what does that mean, evolutionary? And I think that's something we, we would definitely want to like try and investigate in more detail. Yeah, it's interesting because it seems that there's been a lot of effort to try to understand why the Fibonacci numbers, and, and we should say, so I guess the way that the Fibonacci numbers um, fit in is that 
Um, yeah, it, it strikes me that there's been lots of thinking about why the Fibonacci sequence crops up here and in lots of places in, in, in nature. Um, and it it is an interesting thing to explain because it's kind of a non-obvious way that it crops up in these spirals. So it's you, you count the number of spirals going out in one direction and then you count the number of spirals going out in another direction and they are um, Fibonacci numbers. So they're numbers within the sequence that, that appear next to each other. And as a reminder, the Fibonacci sequence is, is the one which goes sort of each term is the sum of the previous two terms. So it's one, one, three, five. Um, have I got that right? Uh, well, yeah. Previous three terms, is it? No. <laughs> Let me get this right. One, one, two, three. One. I left out the two. One, one, two, three, five, yeah. eight. So on. Yeah. Okay. Um, get there in the end. Uh, <laughs> and, and I guess, you know, there is a kind of natural relationship between those numbers in growth because if you have a process where it's you know the next generation depends on um the previous two generations you can kind of see naturally how you you this sequence might represent something uh, and there's also ways of thinking about how how things like fibonacci spirals um which are also called the golden spiral how they can evolve from particular ways of for example arranging boxes yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and so it has various properties, um, which in certain contexts are quite easy to understand how they, they fit into nature, uh, although fascinating nonetheless. Um, one example I really like is, is why you have so many shells which have these follow the golden spiral. And one explanation is just it, it's a scale-free spiral. So as the organism grows and grows and grows and grows, each it can move into kind of successive compartments within this shell and build build them out. Um, and its shape doesn't need to change. Um, so there so are places, I think, where it's quite well understood. But for these, um, it took quite a while, I think, to understand why leaves were arranged in this way. And if I understand correctly, it, it turned out that actually it, it, it's just the optimal way of... Um, packing them so that they receive as much light as possible even as they're as they're growing um yeah it's definitely one so what's interesting is i think that is definitely one of the one of the main hypotheses for mm -hmm. why um yeah why why they should be like, arranged in that way in the sense that just like you say they're arranged so that um a leaf will capture as much sunlight and then will minimize on the shading of the one below mm -hmm. and it's also packed with one however contrary to that um, if that really was the case, then you might also expect that plants would, would modify their arrangement quite easily. So if you grow it in a low light environment or a high light environment, you might expect them to change their pattern. Mm. But in many ways they don't. Instead, they change the actual shape of the leaf. So, um, you know, one way if a plant's in a shady environment, they'll change the position of the leaves, they'll actually change the overall shape of the, um, you know, whether, yeah, the, the overall shape of it. And yet um, the actual patterning um, their arrangement is one of the things that plants don't change. So it's, it's there's still this, there is still this really big unanswered question about what is the the selective advantage and and it, is there really a, a strong selective mm. advantage for why they're so common? I think um, capturing capturing light is definitely one of the key ones, and packing efficiently is definitely another one that's been cited for things like sunflower heads, where you want to pack in as many of these reproductive structures altogether. But there's also, from the side you mentioned, the kind of packing of boxes um, and the fact that these are 
almost you know, self-assembling systems. There's also a, a prominent view that, in fact, this pattern, which is found so commonly in plants, is simply just there because it is a convenient way of growth. Right. Um, and I find that really fascinating to have something which is so common in plants today but might not have, and um, that we're still uncertain about what the real adaptive significance of it is. Yeah, and I, I, that's a fascinating way of thinking about it because it sort of de-emphasizes the evolutionary fitness and says, well, maybe this was just, it's just easy to produce, like the factory yeah. <laughs> yeah. makes this easily. Yeah. Um, uh, and I, I think that there's a kind of, tradition of thinking about that which goes back to someone here in or, or nearby in scotland uh to um uh darcy thompson yeah and and his his book on on growth and form where actually he looked at a lot of these uh, golden spirals and things and he said well yeah okay evolution is clearly important i'm, I'm pray saying a, a lot here um but maybe let's look at kind of the chemical um events i suppose or, or or kind of gradients that might lead for example to if you think of like a horns spiral you know if you have that growing if you have some bone growing more or, or, or horn structure going more on one side than another um you will get a spiral pattern as it just grows slightly faster yeah. and you can quite easily get a logarithmic spiral doing that or a um, fibonacci spiral um, if the rate of growth changes with your distance from a kind of origin. And that, again, that, that seems quite easy to understand why there could just be almost, uh, you know, mechanical things or chemical processes which, which cause that. Um, whereas on the other hand, it's, it strikes me as very hard to explain that from an evolutionary point of view, because even if there's an advantage to that, how do you get something that's so precise in, you know, in, in creating this um, Fibonacci shape? You'd expect it to be, you know, just kind of good enough, right? Slightly off, but to get it down so precisely, I think is hard to explain. Um, so yeah, I, I do find this kind of um, picture really uh, fascinating. And it also opens the question, you know, why, again, why do we not see this kind of Fibonacci arrangement for, um, club mosses now and for the um <laughs> looking up asterisk on yeah. the your kind of ancient plants that, that you studied um yeah what what could be the mechanisms that that are producing that and is there some advantage um exactly and this is, this is i think what got, gets me really excited about this so the the uh, work i described earlier about rooting systems where we found the the root that lacks a root cap and we interpreted it as a transitional form that helps us understand how this how this new organ evolved so that itself, the fossil was incredibly informative and I think it's, yeah, provided this um, great point of reference for beginning to understand root evolution. But one of the difficulties with that is that we don't have um, a diversity of living plants today that lack a root cap. Everything develops a root cap today. So in some ways the fossil is really important, but we can't actually begin to do any experimental testing on the living relatives that easily because, again, we don't find it in living species and, and even some of the mutant lines we find is they're yeah, we there's only a couple of genes that we know that will really disrupt root cap. What's exciting about this um, this example with Phyllotaxi is just like you said, some of the living um, the living relatives, these living club mosses, still develop this pattern, hmm. um, and so that means um, hmm. we can, for the first time, the hope is to actually be able to actually do some experimental testing to really begin to try and drill down into this question: what's going on in these living species today that is doing a very similar pattern to a, a species 400 million years ago. Um, 
and we can actually maybe or we we'll hope to be able to test some of those hypotheses you know can we if we grow this plant in different light conditions do we see changes is it a kind of structural feature so when we find different sizes of plants um yeah a whole range of hypotheses where yeah can't wait to dive into really so this is kind of where the molecular part in the Precisely. you know name of your lab comes in so you you have you, you've you've done the you, you've, you've had this kind of groundbreaking discovery with the fossils that that's the paleobotany um and we should say um because you're probably too modest to mention it that was just published in science um by the time this goes out probably about a, a month ago but you know very recently so yeah c- congratulations but but now yeah that that's almost like the, the beginning of a new research program yeah. where you're like okay we know this was this this is not just a flash in the pan as it were yeah. right it's not something um this this phytotaxi this way of arranging um leaves has, has not just evolved as a kind of random fluke there's something interesting to look at here um can we see what it's doing for the plant how we can affect it switch it off switch it on maybe um yeah so take us through a little bit about the techniques there in in more detail is there kind of gene editing involved or um yeah yeah no definitely so this is yeah as you said an active area we said we can't wait to, to kind of dive into more um and obviously there's there's a couple of ways you can approach this um, obviously we can focus in on these club mosses um, alive today and I think that's going to be our starting place. I think there's many things we want to do um, at quite a, quite a fundamental and basic level which is just to be able to visualise in more detail um, and through a time course about how they develop. So the, mm-hmm. the fossil we were very lucky, you know, I think in total was it five samples we have, five or six samples which for a fossil study is quite extensive but um, to a biologist, that's a, a terrifyingly small sample size. So we can't wait to be able to, you know, grow a whole range of these plants and then really begin to, to tease apart um, how they're developing so that some of the things we want to quantify are um, the kind of distances and the angles between these newly developing leaves mm-hmm. to see whether they follow a regular pattern, whether there's irregularity in there already. Um, and so that's something, again, we're really looking forward to doing with the living species. And then to dive in further, then... Um, um, sadly, we can't do any um, any genetic modification on any of the club mosses because the techniques are just not currently there to be able to do that. Interesting. Um, so that kind of leaves kind of two approaches. One is we go hunting around for other unusual species today, maybe flowering plants where some of these techniques are there that we can look in more detail. Um, or we can think about other rather than you know rather than using kind of gene editing techniques, whether there's any other approaches we can use. And one of the approaches that we're really quite excited about is uh, kind of microsurgery experiments. Mm. Um, so we actually learn a huge amount about the arrangement of leaves through um, what are now, you know, famous experiments done on on the the shoot tips of flowering plants mm-hmm. using surgery experiments. So what they found was that if you took a shoot tip and you made a very small incision right at the tip of the shoot and you separated one developing leaf away from the rest of the growing apex, that you were able to see that. This actually, this tiny little incision had a really big impact on where leaves were going. And this mm. began to indicate that leaves themselves were forming an inhibitory field mm. around them. So a small leaf would actually stop the development of a leaf too close to it. Um, and this was illustrated with these surgery ones because when you made that incision, you were able to, to break to break the pattern and, and leaves would form in some ways closer together than we'd expect them to. So this is a really nice way about how we began to understand the way that leaves are patterned in, in flowering plants today. Um, but those experiments have never actually been done on these on these unusual club mosses. So mm-hmm. for us, this seems like a really logical place to um, 
go and have a go. And I think it's going to be technically pretty difficult, um, but we're definitely going to have a go at seeing where we can replicate those experiments. Am I right in thinking that, that leaves and roots grow from basically stem cells, kind of Mary stem? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that in itself is really amazing. And I guess it's why cuttings work so well, work at all, um, that you can just take a little bit of something and it, and it produces a whole new version. But I guess that's maybe part of why, you know, these techniques are so fruitful, because it's, it's not that the, the cell has already decided what it's going to do. Yeah. There's some kind of signal, there's something about the way that it's arranged, like structurally, chemically, um, whatever it is that, um, you know, when you situate it differently, it behaves differently. I, I find that completely, <laughs> yeah, completely fascinating. Yeah, I think yeah, I think plants plants are amazing in that respect, and it actually takes quite a long time. It still took, took definitely took me a long time to really begin to appreciate what you are really seeing when a plant continues to grow and give out new leaves. Because most studies of uh, development in animals, many of them are done at the embryonic stage when yeah. um, embryos are being patterned, whereas in plants, this is just continuing to happen. So if you're interested in um, you know the origin of a new leaf. If you compare that to you know one of our limbs, mm. kind of the, the plant is just producing these on a regular basis from from a shoot tip, and you can let it grow for a bit, or you can um, watch entirely new organs develop from this population of these these stem cells, and as they differentiate, and you can just keep watching that as the plant continues to grow. And as you said, you can you can take cuttings, you can move them onto different media, you can. Um, yeah, produce a ball of these stem cells and then and then get multiple of these plant cuttings that are um, all genetically identical um, identical mm. from the cuttings of that. So yeah, I think plants really are quite beautiful systems to work with for asking some of these developmental questions. Yeah, and I, I'm being quite speculative here, but it you know it, it, it seems that plants are in some ways con- continuously embryonic. They're they're always able to develop and uh, and that when one looks at nature that seems somewhat evident you know there's a certain kind of plasticity to plants that animals don't have like uh, you know humans look more or less all the same right we reach a certain stage of development and we we you know we don't adapt around that much but if you put a plant um in in different conditions it will look entirely different it can grow to very different sizes and um yeah i i get i can't but help but thinking there's there's some kind of link here between this um, very fundamental different ways definitely. that these 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 forms develop. Yeah, definitely. I think that yeah, having those populations of stem cells, you know, housed in what we call yeah mirror stems, um, just gives gives plants a real plasticity. It means that we're as we're you know viewing kind of growth and through time of the plant, you really are being able to see lots of different stages of development all played out. At different periods of time on that same plant which is yeah really really exciting it takes as you said it takes a while to get your head around that there's not you know there's not within within a seed just a tiny little plant which then just gradually enlarges it actually is a it's an actually changing changing process yeah that's that's wonderful it reminds me of something i wanted to ask you actually which is you know as you walk around let's say you go to the botanic gardens which is just down the road from from here or or if you're in the woods or if you're uh near some rocks you know how how has your work informed the way that you look at all the things around you? Yeah, so I think I think the the most simple one would, would be which will be testified by anyone who comes out with me is that I'm probably going to spend far too long looking at what other people might class as some boring bog plants. And <laughs> <laughs> so definitely um, at the gardens, um, especially because I'm working on these older plants. Um, many of these plants, the vast majority of the plants we work on, all evolved or the lineage, the lineages therein evolved before flowering plants. So. 
I haven't yet graduated to flowering plants myself, which is what <laughs> most people are interested in. So you'll find me definitely scuttling around the, the ferneries and looking for these early club mosses. Um, and I do find um, these, yeah, these, these organisms just really fascinating and can definitely be found, um, you know, there's, lo- there's a number of native club mosses in the UK um, and I'm always excited to find them. And the same with the gardens, um, botanic gardens, especially the kind of fern house that has these quite amazing species because each of these lineages have done, um, you know, they've been on their own evolutionary trajectory for three, four hundred million years compared to flowering plants. You know, they've been going down these different paths for such a long time. So there, there are similarities, but there's also the closer you look, the more you also find some quite um, unusual differences as well. Yeah, and I expect you're looking pretty closely. Are you sort of trying to count the the number of <laughs> <laughs> parastitias, as they're called, these kind of spirals coming out? Yeah, and, and frankly, it's always it's always really difficult. And normally, yeah, for lots of those ones, you really want to take them back to the lab. But I do find myself, yeah, definitely just looking at the the biology and the shapes of these things in in a lot more detail. Um, yeah, but it is yeah, and it's extraordinary because, I mean. I would look at these things and I just wouldn't know what I'm looking for. But uh, it makes me think of you know, the, the story of how you found the, the lack of a root cap, right? Mm. And, you know, that was something that had been just missed for 100 years because, you know, people, as you say, they, they just didn't necessarily know what was what was interesting to look through. And, and I think you mentioned that you looked through hundreds and hundreds yeah. of, of species for that. So you really kind of knew what was, what was interesting to find because you had to just get the right you know angle of cut on the fossil that you know someone had taken yeah. way back when that would would show you this and i'm curious did you know what you were looking for we're stepping back a little yeah, bit so, no but i think i think that's right there's a kind of adage in paleontology that you know you only you only found it because you believed it and i think there's this kind of element that you you do need to have a search image when mm-hmm. you're looking through vast so the, the there's lots of the fossil specimens we're looking through are they're, you know, these thin slices through effectively fossilised soil. Mm-hmm. And so it's just crammed full of stuff. And I think you it's almost impossible to, you can't take in all the information. So it's really good to have a, you know, you need to go with, with quite a specific search image in your, in your mind mm. about what this might, what this might look like. And then again, that, that goes back to the kind of the living side of the work, which is so important for the, for my lab, which is we do a lot of work with the living species where you know exactly what that thin, that, that root looks like before you make a section of it. Mm-hmm. And so knowing that means gives you a real insight into okay, this is the kind of structure I'm going to be looking for in the fossils. Yeah, and then you're going to go hunting for that. But um, I have a, a colleague who collaborate with in in London, and she she works on fossilized fungi. Mm-hmm. And what's really funny is I think that both of us will broadly overlook. <laughs> I will look at the roots and barely see the fungi and she will look at the exact same specimen and be looking and be spotting all these different diversity of fungi yeah. and not see the roots. So again, I think you've got, your eyes kind of get in, um, yeah, you have a kind of search image in mind and then your eyes are kind of drawn to what you're interested in. Yeah, it's fascinating that they may, you know, maybe you've looked at the same slides and, yeah. you know, one man's junk is another man's treasure, as yeah, it were. Yeah, definitely, right? yeah. yeah, um, yeah. But it's just one of the things that, yeah, there's there's so much richness in this this record of, um, do, we, do we call it herbaria? Is that all of the fossils? That, yeah, so, uh, the, so the herbaria are more for the living species. These, right, okay. The, um, whereas these ones are just, um, amazing, it's just like, yeah, natural history collections. Yeah. Um, but it, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm such a, um, an advocate for the importance of, of maintaining, maintaining collections. Um, and that, there are there's enough story there's terrifying stories all around the world constantly of, of you know large collections just being thrown in the bin. Yeah. Um I know you have a story about this I actually. Have a, no, exactly. This <laughs> is so my yeah, my in, in in my work when I was a PhD student in Oxford, um I worked with a box of 
a remarkable box of fossils, which used to be a teaching collection. So they they were fossil thin sections made um, around 1900. Um, they were bought at that time by the university to be used and and you know brought out for you know for, for students really um, to look at during the practicals. And this had just gone on for so long to the point where there was no one teaching this stuff, um, and it just became this kind of dusty old box. And at one stage during a large clear out. This and a load of these other old teaching specimens just, I think, physically went in the skip. They were taken outside. <laughs> Fortunately for me, um, you know, we have, have people who had a, a real passion for saving and, and an understanding of collections. And uh, Stephen Harris, who's now in charge of the herbaria in Oxford, had noticed this and said, you know, we can't, these are actually really important. We should keep these. Yeah. So he accessioned them into the herbaria. And it was this box that I, I investigated. And we got like, the work from just this old, old box of, a box of fossil contributed to you know three new papers and a real real change in our understanding of routing systems, including this this one apex we'd never seen anything like it before. You know, able to give it a entirely new name name to science. Um, again, coming out of a box which was almost lost. So, yeah, I think it's always important important to um to realise that especially there's with new questions and new techniques we can we can really begin to answer uh, to ask some really exciting new questions. That's brilliant. I think in the Hollywood dramatization of this, which I hope happens, you'll be sort of running to the bin yourself and sort of pick it and you say, oh, I found it, you know, um, but uh, yeah. So yeah, it, it, it is wonderful just the, the richness, um, yeah, that we've inherited both, you know, from 300 million years ago, but also from, from these collectors um, uh, about a hundred or so years ago. Uh, so for me, proves the importance of being a hoarder or <laughs> gives some kind of justification yeah. for that. Um, yeah, it, particularly given that people back then didn't necessarily know the value of what they were, were no, finding. Okay. Um, yeah, one, one thing um, I was curious about is you've done a lot of work just having these fossils is the beginning of trying to understand what they tell you. And, and you have to look at them in great detail and you've mentioned how you kind of reconstruct them. Mm -hmm. um, take us through some of those techniques and I'm also curious how technology might change this. Is there a kind of program to digitize the, the, the fossils that we have or kind of somehow catalog, catalog them, if I can say that correctly, um, so that you, know, you, you don't have to traipse around between all these different collections? Yeah. Definitely, so I'll, I'll start off by answering, answering that yeah, that part first, and then we'll go go back to the actual making the kind of three D reconstruction. So I think um, digitizing collections is is absolutely absolutely transforming the science we can do. I think the best story for this comes from herbarium specimens, those flattened plants. Mm. Um, what's nice about them is they're they're flattened. They're typically on you know flat pieces of paper, and so they're ideal to scan. Mm -hmm. um, and so very very high resolution scanners um, um, are used. To, to actually scan copies of them, which include um, basically the plant itself, but also the barcode and where it was collected. So they can can then be geotagged. Um, and these resources are just remarkable. And, and there's been efforts all around the world to do this. And it, it means that if you're interested in a particular plant group, um, you know, whether it's coffee or whether it's, you know, whichever plant is getting you excited, you can actually look on the herbarium about um, all around the world where these specimens are where, where where they were collected, who collected them, what age they were. If you wanted to know, um, yeah, whether these kind of the structure of their leaves might have changed through time, um, 
you can you can take that sort of approach if you want to know how they might have responded to climate change or their their previous distributions before they went extinct for example it's all recorded in these digital herbarium specimens that you can then examine and when you find ones that are really interested you can then just go and um you can either you know loan the specimen or actually go and have a look at them in more detail and on top of that um again to just continue with herbarium specimens for the kind of innovation with them is the techniques for genome sequencing are now so good that mm. um depending on the age of these herbarium specimens, the DNA becomes more fragmented. But especially for more recent ones, and even the ones that are more fragmented, we can still learn a lot from them. So actually doing ancient DNA preparations from specimens collected um, by people like Darwin, um, mm. but also you know, great naturalists at, at, at this kind of time, means we can actually learn a huge amount about um, where they sat within the, the, the family tree of that mm. group, and also how their gene, uh, genes have changed through time. So. Mm. In, in general, I think that's just a really nice example. From the fossil side, um, they're a bit more difficult. Fossils are inherently a bit more 3D, a bit more difficult to um, to digitise. However, there's some really nice new technology um, which is allowing us to quickly and easily make really high-resolution digital 3D models of fossils. Mm. Um, and I think, again, that just opens the door to... I can sit um, here in Edinburgh and, and you know, rotate and zoom in on a fossil specimen I'm really interested in, which is in, say, Montpellier in France, where they have mm-hmm. some fossils I'm really interested in. So I think that that itself does open up the door for just asking new questions. Mm. Um, so I think that's from the kind of collection side. And then finally, also, yeah, there's there's a lot of big, in, um, yeah, big innovations going into, and money going into trying to digitise and catalogue fossil collections, because... Um, it's it's a huge huge job. It's it's a kind of terrifying job if you talk to people who work in collections. If you know big collections, the museum here will have millions of specimens, and actually just trying to work out how to digitise and catalogue them all is a is a huge job. But um, I think it's a really important thing. It'll open up the door for the future. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then then you ask about the kind of three D one. So in in general, we're really interested, especially in these fossils. That um, once from things like the Rhiney Chair, where we have this great level of preservation. Great level of preservation typically comes with a trade-off that they're often entombed within kind of nodules. I mentioned about the kind of permineralization earlier, where you're in encased in a matrix of, of, mm. of a mineral. That means you can see cellular structure, but it's incredibly hard to picture what that's what the actual plant or organism would have looked like in 3D, mm. unless it's really tiny. Um, and so new 3D um, digital reconstruction techniques are allowing us to take images um, of these blocks and then turn them back into these 3D, actual 3D renderings of what they would look like. So classic approach would be things like uh, micro CT imaging, which is similar to the kind of CAT scan you get, um, yeah, that you could go and get in hospital that would use these on um, on rocks and amazingly, um, yeah, if, if it works well and you get good contrast, you can you extract the fossil out of the matrix without having to touch anything at all, right, any wow. destructive imaging. Um, and then for some of the things that we're doing where they don't work as well for scanning, we can take lots and lots of serial thin um, preparations right. and digitally stick them back together. So you have to slice the, the fossil into lots and lots of pieces and then you kind of, yeah. Yeah, so that's what we've, we've been mainly been using. As, as I said, I, the, the gold standard is always going to be non-invasive imaging. Mm. Um, however, sadly, what you really need for that to work is um, density differences between right. the fossil and the matrix it's in. And yeah. Sadly, lots of times, lots of the things that we scan, especially this plot divine chair, just when you render it up, just comes out as a grey blob. Yeah. So then he said, making lots and lots of thin preparations, um, digitally sticking them back together. Yeah. 
Although one one wonders as well if if there will be some advances in that kind of um, micros microscopy or kind of scanning yeah. um, techniques, um, which means that yeah, suddenly you can see the the differences and uh, almost like the way that I'm sure that um, you know the original collectors couldn't have yeah. imagined the way that we're um, able to zoom in and, and reconstruct things in 3D as, as we are now. Def- definitely, I'm, I'm I'm sure there will be, and I think that's why it's so important to um, as much as possible minimize full destructive imaging. Um, and if you do have to do some sort of destructive imaging, there's um, Ideally, say you have a block and you're able to cut it in two and preserve one half of it as a specimen in a museum, even mm. if one half of it gets destroyed, just so that um, yeah, people are still able to have some physical specimen from that block in the future for further examination. Um, it's, it's the kind of ideal. But yeah, to, that's why these non-invasive techniques have just been so, so great. And are we still collecting, you know, as a, as a, as a culture, or set of cultures, are we still collecting a lot of fossils or is it something that's... Um, you know, we, we've inherited this the, these great collections, but we're not really replenishing them, as it were. Yeah, I think there's definitely lots of people who still do a lot of field work. I, I've spent most of my time working with museum collections because I think there's always a tendency, lots of the people who like doing this kind of research also enjoy going and finding the new mm. stuff themselves. Um, and so I think in many cases, there's more specimens in museums that, you know, hold the answers to lots of the questions we're asking at the moment and then necessarily having to go out in the field and collect them. However, there's other cases where new sites are found where they're just giving just remarkable new insights. Um, and so I think field work is always going to be intrinsically important. And I think what's so nice about that now is now that we have a better understanding of how to catalogue and how things might be used in the future, um, it's really important to plan any field work and any new collections with this idea in mind that you might want to preserve the key bits of it and label it in a way and collect collect you know information that you might not think is necessarily as quite as important um, today about the, the method you use to collect it things mm. that someone in the future might be doing an analysis um but they might really need that yeah yeah that that's fascinating and you actually before becoming a kind of botanist or paleobotanist you you were a geologist so i guess you you've kind of really bridged these these worlds and it always strikes me as interesting that geology is this field which has on the one hand people who are interested in kind of oil and gas and how to get those, and then the other people who are interested in fossils, um, which seems so so disparate um, or so different, uh, although there's clearly a link. Um, yeah, how did you find that tran- transition, and what prompted you to to make it? Yeah, so I really I really got interested in in, in geology just because I was uh, I was really drawn to trying to understand the Earth over geological timescales, mm. um, and I studied geology at the University of Bristol, which is um, a fantastic. Um, geology department um, and just that you're saying is it's a really really interesting and disparate course really um, it covers everything from yeah beginning to understand a bit more about um, how the climate has changed through time how the continents have moved how a volcano uh, functions also about trying to understand life um, through the time and then on top of that there's also the whole range of, of geosciences which is encompassed within that as well which is um, not just about fossil fuel reserve, but really thinking about renewable energy mm. and energy sources. So, um, I really, I really enjoyed being exposed to all these really dis, uh, disparate type of things. But got really inspired um, by the what we call paleobiology in Bristol. So Bristol University is really famous for um, the study of paleobiology. So I think often when people think of paleontology, you might be thinking of you know just maybe just kind of um, investigating some bones. Mm. Um, of a dinosaur maybe and paleobiology again is similar to 
what we're trying to do is to really interpret and use more um, techniques from biology and thinking often from um, biology about actually interpreting these organisms and ecosystems in their actual life what, mm. what you know what they would have been like in terms of life and their their evolution so had some really inspirational lecturers um especially professor phil donahue and mike benton who introduced these um yeah the ways of asking these questions about um in particular the, the origins of animals or um the diversification of things like dinosaurs Mm. Um, and for me, what really struck me at that point in time was that these really exciting questions were, um, they, um, especially they were being asked in Phil's lab at the time for the origin of vertebrates, the origin of uh, jaws and teeth, is that these same questions were out there for plants and yet there was less people investigating them. So I decided after having this background of, of geology that for me what would be really useful is to jump over to a, um, a plant sciences field and really nest myself in an environment where everyone's working on plants even if they mainly do it or almost exclusively doing it on living species to really learn a, a lot more about um the methods to study living plants and then we could marry those together with the fossils yeah interesting so yeah you, you sort of first like went quite far away from it by looking at living plants and then kind of now you're you're back in the middle i guess exactly um, yeah. it seems a good way of doing it so you might get a a, a steep learning curve that way i imagine no I, I really enjoyed it i think you know via via osmosis you you just begin to pick up what's around you and i do i did really value just being surrounded by you know the talks the departmental seminars were on all sorts of topics linked with plants you know way outside my comfort zone but you you gradually began to pick up things about methods of how we interrogate and ask these questions in a range of living species um and then you also began to realize about what were some of the key features that people were interested in so an example of that were meristems you mentioned earlier mm -hmm. populations of stem cells they seem to be you know if you're interested in developmental biology and understanding you know plant growth and development this is so important and yet they've really been haven't really seen the attention in fossils they're obviously they're not very likely to preserve but they mm. do occasionally mm -hmm. and i think that's kind of what motivated my interest in trying to find these root meristems in the fossil record yeah yeah it is incredible that you that you can see such tiny structures and as you say at the cellular level yeah. um yeah so um it's a lovely day here in Edinburgh, <laughs> and we're um, so I feel very guilty about keeping you indoors all this all this time when you, when you could be out um, looking at um, what to some may seem very boring plants, <laughs> but I think we now realise the fascination of uh, yeah looking at club mosses and uh, and and so forth. Um, so I don't want to take too much of your time, but I yeah I'd kind of love to know you've talked a little bit about what's next in terms of turning to the molecular side mm. and, and looking at, yeah, how we, why, or what more we can understand about the mechanisms for um, this phylotaxis through um, results that you've, you've discovered recently, like why these things don't form over Fibonacci sequence. Are there other things you're working on? Um, yeah, what else is that? What, what other coals are in the fire? No, definitely. So the, the big one, which is our, our current focus, um, so the phylotaxy turned out as being, you know, an interesting an interesting project because it, it kind of came out of nowhere. It was a it was a project that was ideally placed in lockdown because it was all digital. Um, you know, we're doing the digital reconstructions. Um, but more generally, the, the kind of real focus of my lab at the moment is the evolution of the phloem. Mm -hmm. So the phloem is the sugar condu conducting tissue in plants, in these the group of plants, the vascular plants again. Um, and... The phloem is just absolutely vital for plant function. It moves around you know, food and a, and a whole range of other signaling molecules all, all around the plant body. 
And yet, as a tissue, we, we don't know very much about its evolution at all. We don't know when it evolved. We don't know how it's changed through time. Hmm. And therefore, we can't really predict how it might change in the future. Um, and so, for me, this is a tissue which, um, yeah, holds a lot of promise. And again, from this kind of um, interdisciplinary approach where we can combine together the fossils, um, the living species, and, you know, to try and investigate the genes as well. So this is what the main body of my lab are working on at the moment. We're trying to understand... We're trying to pin down when did the phloem evolve? Mm-hmm. Um, has it changed through time? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we take a group of plants like the ferns that have this long evolutionary history, does the phloem look the same in all ferns, or has it has it varied? And and how if we if we notice changes, do those changes correlate with any big functional changes? Um, and so this is what we're really going for at the moment. And yeah, really exciting. We just um, yeah we're we're about coming up towards three years onto this this kind of project so we're just beginning to get the first really bits of exciting new data so okay watch this space oh indeed um and and is it another place where we might hope to find some things which which give us clues about the future trajectory of 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 evolutionary development does does the phloem do we think the phloem changes with with atmospheric composition for instance yeah exactly so this, this is actually a question which is one of the reasons again that i really wanted to work on this topic because um, we don't actually have a, a really great understanding of this. Intuitively, you think if you're fixing uh, more carbon, so you're more photosynthesis, producing more, more sugars, maybe you're growing faster, then that likely means you're transporting a lot more sugar. Um, but whether that d- definitely correlates with a change in um, flow and structure is, is still not properly known. Mm. Um, be- and on top of that, there's kind of two ways you could change your flow and structure. These are, these are tube, tube-like cells. So one option is you just produce a load more of them, mm. or you produce bigger ones, or you produce um, cells that look similar but have bigger connecting pores between them. Um, and so these are kind of all different options which which plants could use um, and, and may be really important for changing in the future. And again, um, I think hopefully setting out a more evolutionary framework for which groups have decided to modify which parts of the, the phloem structure in general um, will hopefully put yeah be really really informative for trying to understand a bit more about kind of sugar transport for the future yeah it seems that whatever you discover is going to be interesting because if, if we if we find that there's been very little change then that might again point to towards some of the importance of the kind of morphological thinking so just thinking about chemical gradients and um to throw in another term reaction diffusion mm. things that, that actually turing was very interested in that just mean that there's quite simple ways of structuring things which um where evolution is almost to one side and it's just this is you know physically this is this is easy to make yeah. uh, and maybe that's you know if we find that phloem hasn't changed well maybe that that would be a kind of likely um candidate for that and again point to the, the importance of those kind of ways of thinking and if it has changed a lot well you know it could very well give insights into how it's going to develop in future and and, and more clues as to you know what kind of evolutionary pressures were were, were driving things. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're yeah we're really really excited to see see what kind of results we get out and and also to look at you know to see that to investigate the genetic toolkit to see whether genes that we know are you know important in in flowering plants whether they are also really highly conserved or whether it's very very disparate as well. Mm. But yeah, we're really really interesting in these these you know these long evolutionary questions about how much form is changing and which you know why some parts are incredibly conserved whereas other ones are incredibly diverse and i think this is yeah like roots and like and like fire taxi um i think these are the kind of questions i'm, I'm drawn to with these um different different structures and plants yeah 
kind of fi- final thought from from me, and then I'd love to get some final ones from you. It's, it, it just does amaze me how even if the exact kind of structures and 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 um, of roots and and branching have have changed. It seems such a common form within nature, above and below ground, and you know within our bodies as well. In terms of um, you know space filling networks of um, uh, veins and arteries and so forth, it, it seems like there's something again like very special about that that way of filling space. Something very effective. Um, I I don't know if you've I've, there's a wonderful book called Scale by Jeffrey West, which talks about these. Uh, these things and he was looking at yeah more the the metabolic systems within with animals and trying to explain why metabolism has follows particular scaling laws and he traced it back um to the ways that you distribute energy through through organisms which is by these by these networks but then he started to look at cities and things like and he found lots more instances of these branching structures you know in terms of roads and uh so yeah i endless source of fascination to me <laughs> um but yeah um what yeah any closing thoughts questions comments mic drop <laughs> no definitely i just i think just just follows up on um on, on the last point you're making there i think it's i think plants are actually really really nice systems for thinking about scaling um because um you know they're able to transport their water and nutrients through this this vascular tissue that you can quite prominently see and you can you, know, you can look you can follow this from the kind of trunk chunk of a tree to the these tiny little vein endings at the end of leaves and things so i do think plants are a, a really brilliant system for investigating these kind of questions i think plants seem to have been real innovators in that space um because they're you know they, they're governed overall especially by you know capturing light and not wanting to, to waste too much water and then on with that with that as kind of broad constraint they've still you know been able to a remarkable form of remarkable diversity um, of, of shapes and sizes and so I think it's really interesting um, I think plants are a great model system for that yeah I look forward to uh, following along for with the next discoveries that you make you, you seem to have produced some really wonderful insights so far um, so Sandy Harrington thank you so much for, for joining me this has been uh, a, a huge voyage of discovery for me <laughs> and, a, and a great uh, way of time traveling as well well thank you so much for having me on the podcast